Church, I want to ask you, what do you believe in? <laughs> Thank you, Zane. <laughs> in who or what do you put your faith in? This question may be answered differently at different times. For example, if you were rock climbing, you would need to put your belief and faith in your gear, your equipment, in the cliffs not crumbling as you are trying to climb it, and in your own skills at tying ropes, tying off, and belaying one another. Right? If you were going in for a job interview, you would need belief and trust in your ability to do the job. In some level and display of confidence to the person interviewing. If you were driving, and most of us drove to get here, we put a certain amount of belief and trust into that situation, don't we? Into our own abilities to drive, often overrated. The other driver's ability, which is always overrated, right men? the safety of our vehicles, and even the idea that the oncoming car is not being driven by a teenager looking at a cell phone. We put a tremendous amount of belief and trust into things all the time, in how we live and in the things that we do. In this life, there are many things to put our belief and our trust into, and today we're going to see the ultimate thing or the ultimate one that we are supposed to put our belief and trust in. Especially in troubled or troubling times. In church, let's be honest, we are a people this year who are very familiar with troubled and troubling times. Are we not? That might be a great description of this year in and of itself. We're in John chapter 14. Starting in verse 1, we're going to be working through verse 6, but I'll just give you a heads up that we are not covering verse 6 in depth today. We're going to be hitting verse 6 next week, but it's part of what we're looking at today, and so that's what we'll read and what we'll look at today. Remember, these are Jesus' words, and he says this, starting in verse 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and that you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, in the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, we are given a command in this passage, and it is not a command, or it is a command that is not easily followed. It is a command that we are given with the expectation that we would live it, and yet for most of us, maybe all of us, we often lived with troubled hearts. 
Now, it's curious to me that Jesus would command his disciples to not have a troubled heart when just a few verses ago, the scriptures tell us that he had a troubled heart. You may remember back in John 13, verses 21, verse 21, where it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. It's the same language that we see then at the beginning of 14. Jesus commands them to not be troubled, and yet he himself has just had a troubled heart. Maybe that's part of why they have a troubled heart, because it's contagious. You may remember that Jesus' troubled heart was, was over Judas, the betrayal that was coming, and the fact that no matter what Jesus did, no matter what Jesus offered to him, how many chances Jesus gave Judas to do the right thing, he just wouldn't do it. The beautiful thing that we know is that as hard as it is for us, we look at Jesus and say, you know what, this was hard for him too. Friends, trouble comes to the Christian and to the non-Christian alike. If you study God's word and read through, what you actually find in scripture is that sometimes God's people are actually troubled far more than the rest of the world. That there are times when for the Christian it is harder. We know that we have an enemy who seeks trouble for the believer. We have an enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. We also know that we have a good and gracious God who brings or allows trouble and pain in our lives that we might grow. That we might trust in him in those hard times. Friends, we may be troubled, but what we see here is that Jesus commands us to not be. To not be. And that is easier said than done, I think. We are commanded this, to not be troubled. And yet I, as your pastor, know how often you are troubled. And most of you know how often I am troubled. What we're going to do today is start with that troubled heart. Where does that come from? And then see what Jesus' answer to that is. And perhaps today, by the end, we might actually have um, the equipping to follow what Jesus has said here. Amen? Friends, as we look at this passage and think through what's going on, the first thing we need to recognize is where troubled hearts come from. And so to do that, let's take a quick look at the disciples, right? That's who he's speaking to right here. And in the course of the last two or three hours of their lives with Jesus, he washed their feet. That was troubling enough. Peter outright refused at first. They didn't know what to do with this idea that their rabbi would bend down and lower himself in such a way as to wash their feet. Right after that, Jesus announced that one of them was going to betray him. That sounds kind of troubling, especially when you don't know who it's going to be. Jesus then caused that one to go out from them. They're no longer the twelve. One of them is missing. 
Right after that, Jesus predicts Peter's denial in front of all of them. Peter's got to be pretty troubled at this point. Then Jesus announced, or actually right before this, Jesus announced that he's leaving them. And where he's going, they can't go. This is a really troubling time. It really is. The reality of all of this is setting in for them. Their friend, their rabbi, their master, their teacher, whom they had given everything up to follow. Everything. Their lives, their families. He's leaving. And they're not going to get to go. They've got to be sitting there asking the question, well, now what? Or then, well, what are we going to do once he's gone? Can you imagine this? Spending every waking moment for the last three years literally walking and talking with Jesus, being touched by him as he, he lays a hand on his shoulder or on his knee in support. And suddenly you're realizing he's going away. Friends, I imagine it would be like the Garden of Eden all over again. Think about this. The, in the garden, God had walked and talked with Adam and Eve. God had spent time with them. And then suddenly for them, because of the fall, because of their sin, the garden is closed to them. And the reality that they had lived in, of walking and talking with God, is now gone and they're shut out forever. The disciples are experiencing a second garden moment as they're feeling that they are going to be separated from the one that they have been so close to. The reality of all this is crashing down on them at that moment. And friends, their hearts are troubled. Think about that even for a moment for ourselves when we have been, if you have been, close to the Lord. And then suddenly you have a moment or a season where God just seems distant. Or maybe not even seems, maybe he is if we can even say that. And we have a second garden moment where the intimacy that we had with God, the relationship that we had with him is no longer, he's no longer near. And what do we experience? Troubled hearts. We too experience troubled hearts. Perhaps they're wondering what they would have done or could have done that would cause Jesus to leave them. They're looking around. Is it your fault? Is it, is it your fault? Is it my fault? Why is he leaving? This kind of sounds like a kid whose parents are going through a divorce, blaming themselves. Perhaps they're wondering if they had brought some sin or displeasure to the table. Perhaps they're wondering if anything would ever be right again. Because when you have been close to God and then you find yourself separate from God, it, it troubles our hearts. And I think there's three ways that we can find ourselves in this. In this troubled heart, maybe this one of these describes you even today. There are moments that we might call seasons of silence. These are moments for a believer 
who has known God, who has heard from God, who has had an intimacy in their soul with God. As they read through scripture, it was illuminated in front of them, and they spent all this time being in wonder. But then, there's a season of silence, and that intimacy becomes a shadow, becomes a memory. It becomes a, a, something that is only there vaguely. Some of us have experienced seasons of silence where God has not spoken to us for an extended period of time. He has not responded in some way to our prayers. We have felt alone and we have felt empty. This is troubling. If you are in a season of silence, continue to listen. We have a faithful God. And if you are a believer, that season of silence will only be so long before he speaks to you again. Just be encouraged by that for now. We'll see more of that in a few minutes. The second cause for this is seasons of sin. See, a season of silence is often caused by God who disappears for a season that we might yearn for him. On the other hand, a season of sin is one that we cause. And friends, we worship a holy God who cannot be with sin. And so as we persist in our sin, as we voluntarily choose it over and over and over again, God then hides his face. The hope there is that we would then turn to him and repent and come back to him. For any of us who may be in a season of sin right now, you may be listening to this right now and thinking, no, no. It's not me. Seasons of sin, those seasons where we choose what is opposite of God for our own pleasure, our own bliss, our own passions. And like Judas, we set our minds on the hearts and things that betray Jesus. If you are a believer and you are in a season of sin right now, the invitation for you is to repent and believe. Turn your life over to him. Confess your sin to him that that season might be done. The third thing that may cause a troubled heart is that you simply have never known Christ. Even if you were raised in the church, you've been in the church a very long time. While you have continued to search and search and search, while everybody around you seems to have found. For some of us, we've never been there. We've never been in anything but a troubled heart. Because we have always been at that garden moment of separation from God. And for you, if that's you today, the invitation is to, to choose Christ, to give your life to him, to repent and believe that Christ is there. Now, 
Now, we know also, or we should know, that it's not just separation from God that causes troubled hearts, is it? I mean, if we were to get a whiteboard up here and start a list of the things that troubles our hearts, uh, we would need whiteboards all around the room, right? The thing about those things, and as I study them and as I think about what that is, is it's also all the things that come out of the garden, all of the things in our lives that come out of the fall of mankind into sin, the things that trouble us, the things that aren't right in this world. Disease, illness, sickness, death, poverty. The list could go on. Christian, you and I, in many ways, we should be, or at least it should appear in some way, that we are troubled by all of the things that are affected by the fall, by sin being in this world, by things not being right, not being the way they were meant to be. The troubles of this world trouble our hearts. But Christ tells us, Christ commands us to not let our hearts be troubled. Christian, do you live a troubled heart life? Because Jesus' command here is that we wouldn't. In fact, Jesus lays out a vision for his people here. One that are not carried around by passions and by emotions to and fro but who stand in the sea of life's troubles. Who stand as trouble comes and it goes. Who stand in him as heartaches and pains come. We would be a people who do not waver. As governments crumble and are built, that we would be a people who do not waver. That we would be a people who do not waver when death comes, that we would be a people who do not waver when our neighbor hurts us, injures us in some way, or when our loved one falls away from the Lord into a season of sin. Are you someone who is not carried off by the sea of trouble? Or are you one of those people who every time trouble comes, you suddenly are swept away as if a flood took your feet out from you and carried you downhill. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Fortunately for us, fortunately for us, friends, um, he doesn't leave us on our own to not have troubled hearts. And so I want to turn to what Jesus says how in the world are we, people who are so easily troubled, supposed to not have troubled hearts? And we see Jesus' response here. The first thing he says is that we have someone that we can count on. In verse 1 he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now the first thing you need to know about this word belief is that it's not just an idea. It's not just a connection to an understanding. In the Bible when it talks about belief, it is always talking 
about the idea that is then acted upon. It always includes the word trust. Like the rock climber who must trust in the gear so that if they fell, they would know it will catch them before they hit the ground. If you don't trust your gear when you're a rock climber, you don't climb up the rock. I know many people who believe in God, but who have simply put no trust in him. When you look at their lives, there is no trust. All there is is belief and understanding, if you will, of who God is. But when they, when the trouble comes, they're carried away. Belief in action is trusting belief. The kind of trust that a child may put in their parent in the dark. What Jesus is saying here, and we need to see this, is that this is the first step. This is the first place to respond after the troubled heart comes. He says, disciples, you have trusted in God. He takes that for granted, that his disciples, he knows them. He knows who they are. He knows they trust God, probably much in the same way that you and I trust in this idea that God will take care of us. And Jesus says, trust also in me. Now, friends, if Jesus wasn't God, that would be blasphemy. Right? There's no adding to God. He says, trust in God. As you have trusted in God, so too trust in me. He says, God has been on your side. You know that. You take that for granted. God has been on your side. Well, friends, so too am I on your side. So too am I here for you. So that no matter what trouble comes, Jesus is there. And we can put our belief and our trust in him Friends, it's one thing to have a really big God who's kind of watching out for us. It's a whole nother thing to have a really big God who is closer than a brother watching out for us and taking care of us. I don't think we spend enough time thinking on this. Friend, when the wave of trouble comes, this is what we need to think on. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, we're carried off by trouble because we're not really sure that God is for us all the time. Romans 8.38, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What trouble is there compared to the love of God? Trouble comes, but when trouble is compared to the ever-loving, ever-reaching, compassionate love of God who is on our side, what is it? The second thing we see that we need to turn to when trouble comes is that we have an eternal home in heaven. This life is not forever, but heaven is. Our eternity is, verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. In my Father's house there are many rooms. The implication that he is laying out here 
is that there is enough rooms for every one of us. There is enough room for every one of us. And in fact, there is a room with your name on it if you are in him. In our culture, we may joke or complain about those um, young people. I can start saying that, coming up to 40 now. (laughs) About those who have failed to launch. Parents may loathe the idea that their child is growing up and is going to move out until the moment where that child becomes a man and is still in the basement playing video games. Right? But God, but God is a place for you. God has a place for you. A place for you to come, to be home, a refuge for all eternity. What are the troubles of this world when we think about that room, that place that has been prepared for us as the people of God? Church, did you know that you can go there now too? That eternity for the believer starts the moment we become Christians. It doesn't happen until when we die. Did you know that he went to prepare a place for you, a home of hospitality? And this is a place that we can find refuge in even in this life, in the presence of God. Far too many of us look far too far to the future When what we could look to is right now in the presence of God. We're going to see that even more clearly in a few minutes. God has a divine hospitality. We are welcomed and we are made to feel at home there. Next, what we see is that Jesus is preparing a place. The second half of verse 3. Jesus says in the first part, if I go and prepare a place for you, or sorry, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Right? Jesus says there is a house with many rooms, and he says, I'm going to go prepare that place for you. I have this crazy image of Jesus creating space in his house like one crazy HGTV show. Right? Where there's just showing all these different things that are happening where, where God is literally creating space for you because he loves you. One of those, you know, maybe uh, shows where where the family's getting bigger and they don't have enough room and so they're expanding and everyone needs a a space and they get all extravagant. The trouble is, didn't he just tell us that there are already rooms there? Didn't he just tell us that there are many rooms there? That these rooms are for us? What does it mean that Jesus, when Jesus says... I am going to prepare a place for you. Friends, you need to hear this. The rooms are ready, but the occupants are not. The rooms are ready, but the occupants are are not. You and I were not. Maybe still are not. See, the thing is about God's house, this is a family manor. This house is only meant for family. So if you're not a child of God, you have no room there. None. At this point, there are no children of God. At this point, as Jesus says this, he has not yet died. People are still waiting for that to happen. 
John 1, 12, all who receive him are given the right to become children of God. All who receive Christ are given the right to become children of God. God's house is a family manor. And in order for any of us to go there, Christ has to prepare us to be there. We have to become children of God. We're told in the book of Ephesians that we are adopted into the household of God. That we are made, those who were not family are made to be family. Christ is preparing that place. And we know that just now, just in all of this, the context of this is that by the end of the night, he's betrayed. By the end of the next day, he's dead. He's given his life on the cross. Why? To prepare us to be the children of God so that we might be welcomed into the manor house of God. What trouble is there compared to Christ and his work on the cross that we would be saved? What trouble is there? The next thing we see, and this is also in verse 3, that we are safe in the Son's presence. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be, or you may be also. Right? Christ says, look, I'm preparing a place, there's a, a home for you. And he says, I will be there with you. There I am, you will be also. This is meant to be the promise of the permanence of the presence of God in our lives. Something we can look forward to in eternity. And something we should be experiencing here and now. Because the answer to a troubled heart is what? It's the presence of God. We are troubled because we are apart from him. He says, do not be troubled. Jesus says, I will come back for you. You will not be left on your own, to your own works, to your own confidence, but rather to the returning of the king. Friends, this is Aslan safe. This is Aslan safe. Aslan is the picture that we are given of Christ in C.S. Lewis's stories of Narnia. Aslan is a lion. He is a lion that no one is going to mess with. We're told in the books that he is not safe. He's dangerous. But we're also given the picture of children riding on that lion. I gotta be honest, if I saw a child riding on a lion, I ain't messing with that child. <laughs> right? Christian, are you Aslan safe? Are you Aslan safe? Are you safe? in Christ's presence. Because if you are, then what trouble can come for you? What trouble can come for you as you sit in the presence of Christ? The next thing we see when trouble comes is that the way out of it is known. Jesus says, you know the way. I want to read verses 4, 5, and 6 for us here. Thomas, 
And by the way, I think this is the moment when, when Peter gave Thomas permission to put his feet in his mouth. Okay? Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where, we, where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, through me. In verse 4, though, I skipped this. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus says to them, you know the, where, the way to where I'm going. Thomas opens his mouth and he's like, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Church, I've learned this many times by experience. When God says something, please don't argue with him. Okay, don't argue with God. When he says something, Jesus says, you know the way. Thomas says, we don't know the way. Jesus says, you do because you know me. He says, you do because you know me. Literally, this means to know. They know the way. As in like they're talking to him right now. They don't have a map. Okay? They don't have a, a plan. But they know the one who knows the way because he is the way. The way is what is going to show them how to get there. A few years ago, we were uh, visiting friends at a family cabin up in the mountains. And to get there, you had to drive on the highway and the highway and then a back road. And, and then you had to travel like 30 minutes on, you know, dirt roads that who knows where the heck you are. So our friend said, hey, look, rather than me trying to tell you how to do it and give you the landmarks that I use and all these things, he said, I'll just meet you at the bottom of the hill. And you can follow me up. Jesus says, I will come back for you. And I will show you the way. We could have spent a day driving around dirt roads trying to find this house that we had never been to. But the much simpler option was to be met along the way and shown it by the one who would take us home. Jesus says, you know the way. The reason he can say that is because he is the one who's going to show them the way. And church, this is what he says to us. He says, look, I will come back for you and I will take you there. You don't need to be concerned with the landmarks. You don't need to be concerned with the details. I will get you there because why? Because you know me. Because you know me. He meets us and he guides us there. He takes us by the hand and he leads us. What trouble is there when Jesus is leading us along? Friends, the last thing we're going to look at here as we think about the way out of trouble is that there is simply nothing else to trust in. There is nothing else to trust in. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to me or comes to the Father but by me. There is nothing else. There is no one else. And I think the reason why we so often live with our troubled hearts is because we look to all kinds of other things for the solution. 
rather than to the only one who can ease our troubled hearts. Now, as I said, we're going to be looking at these verses next week. This was supposed to be part of this sermon, but we'd be here another 45 minutes. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And if he is those things to us, then what trouble is there? What trouble? What? What can we bring before him that he cannot handle? What can we bring before him that he doesn't already know about? Friends, I want to tell you, we have every reason for troubled hearts. Hear this. We have every reason for troubled hearts, but we also have every reason to let our troubled hearts be quieted. Every reason that our hearts would be quieted, that we might be in peace. Will you trust in Jesus today? When trouble comes for you next, maybe that's on your way home or maybe that's waiting for you at home. Maybe that's tomorrow or a week from now. When trouble comes, in who or what will you trust and believe in? God, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who hear it and listen and go. That we would take that, that we would measure ourselves by your words. God, and if we find that we are lacking, that we would come before you in repentance and in hope and in trust and lay that out before you. God, I do pray that if any of us are sitting here with troubled hearts even today, Lord, I pray for them. I pray for us. And I pray that our hope and our faith and our trust would be in you and in you alone. Lead us out of a season of silence if we've been in one. Lead us out of a season of sin if that's been where we have been. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room right now who has not yet given their life over to you, who has found themselves living in the season of trouble their entire lives, Lord, I pray that their lives would be given over to you, that your spirit would lead them to you. God, I pray that you would be at work in us in this time. And we come to you, Lord, for your power, for your glory, for the kingdom, and for the good that we see in us because of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we come now to the time of communion for us, the Lord's Supper. And this is always the time that follows our message because we want to respond to God's word. This is a moment for us to confess our sin before him. So if there is sin in your life that you need to lay down, this is the, or if not the best opportunity to do so, to lay that out, to remember what Christ has done for us in forgiving our sins.